Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer before we uh, consider the word this morning. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, we're grateful for the way that you're always just so faithful to speak when we sit at your feet. So Lord, here we are opening your word, and I trust that you have something For each and every one of us here today, Lord, that you have something unique and special for us personally, a way to redirect us, recalibrate us as we look unto you, because you are faithful to do just that. And um, we trust that to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, so open up to Matthew 14. We're going to be um, in that chapter uh, this morning, and we're going to read a considerable amount of it, um, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll be shorter Perhaps every time. Every time gets a little bit shorter. I get a little bit better. Um, so today we're going to be studying one of the uh, greatest stories in the New Testament. It's, only, it's one of the very few uh, to be... Um, uh, present in every single gospel account, which is pretty remarkable. Um, I've, uh, you know, been working on it for the last couple of days. It's not what I planned on speaking uh, on this morning. God has a way of changing our plans in sometimes wonderful and pretty inconvenient ways. So we'll see what happens here today. Um, I've been experimenting with uh, my Bible reading techniques. Maybe you've done this throughout the years as you uh, fluctuate in the way that you address, you know, the word of God. I used to read really slowly and very methodically verse by verse and, and you know, pausing for careful consideration. Um, some days just commiserating on a single Verse, and that would be it for the day. And lately, what I've been doing is uh, coming to the Bible uh, like a like a blue whale eating krill, right? You just open up that gaping mouth and you just suck in a huge portion uh, to get a sense of of the combined flavor of it all, right? And and to get a sense of the greater context of it all. And there's just something different that you notice when you take in that scope. Of it, this is just one of those passages where I was, I, I was surprised by the difference I saw in it when I took it as a huge chunk rather than as 
um, a, a careful consideration verse by verse. So we're going to kind of glean those insights from the chapter. You can look at the headings along with me and get a sense of the scope. Um, the three things that we'll be talking about this morning, it's the beheading uh, of John the Baptist, his execution, a Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Peter walking on water. Three really directly connected events that I think need to be uh, considered that way. They, they work together to paint this picture. It's a wonderful picture, right? When, when, you, when you take it as, as its whole, um, where you have just this picture of Jesus and he's, he's miraculous and he's compassionate and he's just so loving and kind. And then you have this picture of the disciples, um, this second picture, and they're, they're disheartening and disappointing. And when you look at them here, just really kind of depressing. And so I sat down on Friday uh, to begin working on my notes is the day that, you know, the Lord kind of put this passage on my heart. And hour one, typing away on my Chromebook there, um, and it was two pages like that, an hour one, uh, notes, insights on Peter, the failings of Peter. And you're reading the headlines. Maybe you're already thinking the same things. You're loading them up. You're going, ah, that Peter, what a knucklehead, that guy, right? Two pages, boom, on the page. Hour two, uh, another page, maybe a page and a half, the disappointment of the other disciples. Oh gosh, these guys, when are they going to get it together? You know, and I'm reading it there and I'm typing on the computer, just going, come on guys, it's been so long and you're still doing this sort of nonsense. Hour two, that was a good hour. I felt good. I felt very productive. Hour three, insights that I had never noticed in the inconsistencies of their faith despite the many experiences they've had with Christ to this point. Come on, how can you still not believe? You've been with them since the beginning. Now you've been called out of your old lives as fishermen. You've been set on this path of discipleship with your Savior. He's everything that you looked for in a Lord and so much more. And yet still, these inconsistencies, another page right there. Good notes, looking, typing, you know, just reading the Bible going, tisk, 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 you disciples. It's ridiculous, ridiculous. Hour four, I come out of the, the writer's room and bump into Corinne in the kitchen, and we have a, just a quick throwaway conversation um, where I mention that I'm going to be talking about this. And then she points out, just in passing, how I'm similar in many ways <laughs> to those disciples. <laughs> in a way that she had no idea was in my notes. I didn't tell her that. Just knew that stuff. Just living with me for years. And um, so hour five. <laughs> stare at my computer with shame and introspection and delete everything and start again. Right? Because it is one of those passages. It is. It's an easy trap to fall into when you read scripture as a whole, but specifically a passage like this to think so critically about everything that goes wrong here, right? That's so easy to do. But when we stop and allow the passage to examine us, oh, it's a very different story. And 
Hopefully you're already there in Matthew 14 as we get into this. I'm going to go ahead and summarize the first portion. As we humbly consider a Savior that is both fully man and fully God, right? Getting the news that his friend and cousin has been beheaded by Herod, right? And that his head was presented on a platter as a dinner party gift. And I'm not going to ask the question, can you imagine what that's like? Because of course, of course, none of us can, right? But in effort to understand, right, the Lord's human reaction, we got to go through this grisly story. Herod had wanted to execute John the Baptist ever since John the Baptist spoke out about this kind of incestuous relationship that Herod was involved in with his, uh, with his brother's wife. John the Baptist spoke out boldly against this relationship. Herod imprisoned him. And then in his meetings with him, you begin to see that he was growing in this sort of fondness for him, that he didn't want to execute him anymore. He wanted to isolate him and just shut down the influence of this man so he can continue living in this life of licentiousness, right? This life of sin that he had begun cultivating and that he wanted to keep. And it's at a party that we read in scripture that his stepdaughter performs this dance for him. And um, that, that uh, it, it, if you've grown up in the church or you've heard this preach before, you might have heard that, that it, it, it was a seductive dance. And she was a very young woman. I, I went ahead and I did a word study because I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a hopeless you know, just, I'm that guy. Um, and the word there for dance is uh, orakemi, right? Orakemi is the word used in Greek to um, signify this dance. And I just, I don't see any evidence of it being seductive in the usage of that word. It's actually the word used elsewhere in scripture just to talk about children at play. Jesus actually used it. This is a strange coincidence. And I got to stop deviating if we're going to get through all of this, but I promise there will be very few of these. Uh, it's an interesting coincidence that one of the only other times this word is used in scripture is also about John the Baptist. When Jesus is talking about the ministry of John the Baptist and, and talking about how he's calling out as this herald and people just aren't responding, they just aren't listening. Jesus says, and it's a famous line, especially if you're, you know, uh, like an indie music fan, because Me Without You has a great song about it where he says, you played the flute and no one was dancing and the children weren't dancing. It's the same word. So Jesus is talking about this thing where it's just a childlike dance. It's a response to music. And, and it, it signifies just leaping and playing in a rhythmic sense. And so here's this young girl, and she's leaping, she's playing, and Herod is just so pleased with it. And he makes this bold proclamation that whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, you got it. What do you want? I don't think that it was this like calculated decision. It seems more just like an opportunistic play for revenge because um, uh, Herodias, Herod's bedmate, was, uh, was like enraged by John. She wanted revenge 
to fall upon John for everything that he had said against her and, and you know, sullying her reputation and all this. So uh, she it leans upon her daughter to request the head of John the Baptist. And that was Herod's birthday party. Horrifying, right? When you put it in the scope of that, that was his birthday party. He calls for the head of John the Baptist to be brought in on a platter for this leaping around little girl. Um, so Herod's birthday party, a child dancing, a prophet beheading, and now a savior greeting. And we will start reading on, in verse 13. So if you would look at verse 13 with me, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And Jesus hears what had happened, and he wanted to be alone. Have you ever been there? This is such a human moment. This is such a human moment. He gets on this boat, he pushes out into sea, and he thinks, I just need to be alone for a while. Just a moment alone with my memories of this man that I loved, of this relationship that we had, just a moment alone with my grief. And so he sets out to sea, like a bomb to the soul, right? Just to recalibrate, refocus, become refreshed, to pour out his heart to his father. It's comforting that Jesus felt that, right? Because we've been there. It's so comforting to me that you see Jesus like this in scripture. We see in scripture that he wept. And it wasn't because like he stubbed his toe, you know, like my kids, they get the littlest owie and it's just like, you know, their face is melting. There's so many tears pouring down and it's just, ah, and I'm looking at him like, there's, uh, there's no blood, man, no blood, no boo-boo. You're okay. Right. It wasn't because, you know, he went to watch Charlotte's Web uh, in, in a movie theater on one of his first dates with his then girlfriend And he was crying his eyes out in a moment where it'd be appropriate for someone who's emotionally developed to cry their eyes out, but still a 12-year-old girl looks at him and calls him a baby in a movie theater, which was very hurtful. (laughs) (sighs) And Corinne still married me after that date. Isn't that bonkers? I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't marry that person. (laughs) um, but, But not Jesus right? He, he wept and says, speaking about, about Lazarus, right? He wept over the deaths of these, these men. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He feels our grief in loss. He feels that. Yeah, it's become increasingly common. I won't spend much time here for Christians to act like we needn't grieve when we experience this kind of loss, almost uh, robotic in, in its response. It's very unusual and strictly unbiblical, right? It, that just, it's, in this life, we will experience loss. I believe in this life, Jesus has shown us how to respond to it. And here you have a man that, that fully steps in to this moment of loss he, he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't try and spiritualize it. He, he feels it deeply and personally. Now, his loss was, of course, John's gain, 
You, you can't argue that. You, you can't ignore that. Some people like to just say that. They say, well, well, don't cry. They're in heaven. Right? And of course, it was better for John to be in the presence of Almighty God than it was for him to be beheaded in a prison. That is undeniable. But their gain was certainly Jesus' loss. He lost a friend. He lost a family member. And um, it's only human. But notice what he did next year. Rather than becoming lost in his solitude and sorrow, in verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them um, and healed their sick. Right? Rather than becoming lost in solitude and sorrow, he decides to reach out as a memorial. Right? Isn't that brilliant? John wouldn't want me to wallow here and waste away on this boat year after year, you know, just saying, oh, oh, John, my life will never be the same. You know, no, John would want you to get out of that boat, to see those people. The father would call you and burden on your heart and say, there's a world out here that's hurting also. It's not just you. Now it's up to you to reach out to them, to have compassion on them, to step into the fray and do something about it. Oh, it's so easy to cling to the boat and say, I feel this tremendous sorrow. I feel this tremendous void. I feel this tremendous emptiness and nothing can be done about it. In the boat is everything from your past. Oh, but outside the boat is everything that awaits you in your future. Oh, that's so neat to see. It's easy to become a slave to the past. And you know what? You could have a wonderful, glorious past. You really can. You become a slave to that too, can't you? You know, people looking back on their glory days in high school. Oh, I was on the football team. I could still fit into my letterman jacket. Want to see? No. I don't. Yeah. People could look back on their college days. Oh, I was... I was such a crazy guy back. Those were the days, you know. Oh, now I'm married. I'm settled down. It's fine. Sure, it's fine. No. Your past could also be grievous and terrible. You become a slave to that too. Either way, one thing is true. It's in the boat for you to leave behind as you step out upon the shores of today. And today, you are here for a reason. And I really do, I have a hard time believing that the reason that we're all here today is to remain in the bondage of yesterday. I have a very hard time believing that. Jesus was drawn out of the boat by compassion for others. He saw their needs. He set himself aside. And in verse 15, as everyone approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I love that verse, especially verse 16. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible because it's just so weird. It's one of those verses that if you were standing there, you'd be like, nope. <laughs> you see all these people, he's like, no, I don't need to go away. You, you take care of that. Like, With what, Jesus? You, know? you want to pretend like this is all so spiritual. 
But I got to believe that Jesus had a smile on his face there, right? Because he knew what was going to happen. We know what's going to happen. The disciples didn't have a clue. They didn't have a Bible, right? It's not like they could open it up and go, okay, well, this is what's about to happen. That's really cool. I should not act like a clod right now because, you know, this is kind of a big deal, right? Imagine that there is a Bible about your life, right? And other people are reading it. They would be reading it and having the same response to your life. They go, why didn't you? Why'd you say that? Why'd you do that? Why didn't you do the other thing years ago? What's the matter with you, right? We have the benefit of being able to read it. So we need to not be so hard on them. But that's what I did in my first draft, the draft that I deleted. I came up with three points. Here they are. If if you're a note taker and you want to be negative, here it is. (laughs) Three points right here. And they're going to be fast points, I promise. I criticized them for saying this was a remote place, right? That's a valid criticism. They didn't recognize the potential of any place in which Christ is. How could they? Terrible sinners. As long as he is near, there is no place without potential. And that's a fact. There's no place without potential. Two, I wanted to criticize for telling Jesus to send the people away. Right? I really wanted to do that. I wanted to say, they shouldn't have done that. That was a terrible decision. Why would they do that? How could they be so cold? How could they be so callous? Surely they could see that Jesus brought these people here for a reason. That he arranged all of this so that the disciples could minister to them, right? No sooner had Jesus brought all these people near that um, he says, all right, get rid of them. Right? That's terrible. That's my second point. They're awful. Three. I wanted to criticize them for telling the people <clears throat> to have their needs met somewhere else out in the world. Isn't that a horrifying thing to consider, right? All these people come to Jesus and they go, all right, so what you need, it's out there, beat it, right? <laughs> and they want to send them away so that in the midst of the one capable of perfectly meeting their needs, they would leave empty handed seeking sustenance elsewhere. And I guess as I deleted everything, (laughs) I realized that I was guilty of every single one of those. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. Maybe you are too, right? Um, Wherever we are, right? This is coming back to the first one. He is there with us. There is no such place as a desolate land. Wherever he has you, he has you there for a reason. I don't know what that reason is all the time. I I don't know. I feel so often like there are just, you know, machines, you know, that life goes through. It's like, you know, this is the routine. So this is my morning like machine, you know, this is my going to work routine. You know, and it's all just very mechanical. And in, uh, in that kind of life, it's easy to find yourself in a land that feels very barren, that feels very uh, dry and far away and, and remote from where uh, you want to be, from where you feel like you could exist effectively. Know this, okay? I need to know this, so... I'm just saying, know this. 
Um, he is there. Always. Wherever you are, he has you there for a reason. And I think it's because he wants you to do something special there. And I think that rather than judging the place um, for what it's not, we need to start realizing um, what it is, where it is, where he is, and why he has you there. Second, um, the second reason why I del- deleted this point about him sending the people away is because <clears throat> uh, as the years have gone on, this has gotten worse rather than better, but I've always had this kind of like social awkwardness and social anxiety. Some of you that have tried to talk to me <laughs> have noticed this rather quickly. <laughs> um, it's, it's not easy for me to be around people. It just isn't. I don't like parties. I, I don't like groups of people. I get very uncomfortable and I just, I want to leave. And it's not like something in my heart where I'm looking at everyone else and I'm like, God, get rid of them. <laughs> because that would be terrible. <laughs> but uh, it's more like me looking at myself and going, God, get, get rid of me. Get me out of this. Get, get me out of here. And I want to just, I want to flee. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why. Maybe that's just the way I'm like wired in the worst way. <laughs> um, the reality is that we could have been born anywhere. Okay, well, we were born here. Well, today, you could have been anywhere. No, but today you are here. I could have slept in today, right? It would have been pretty easy. I didn't get much sleep last night. But I'm also here today. And God has chosen to, like, orchestrate the universe so that all, all of us could be within each other's realm of influence for this moment. You'll have moments like this all week long. Your entire lifetime where God has just, for whatever reason, cosmically arranged things so that you're around specific people. I don't know why. Exhortation, encouragement, maybe there's correction, maybe there's some reason. It's easy to just look at people and go, ah, you make me uncomfortable, bye. (laughs) Oh, but God is doing something with every human encounter that you have. It's dripping with eternity, dripping with it. Third, um, I deleted this because I realized that now is when our needs can be met. This is such a wonderful picture physically of what God wants to do for us spiritually. He desires to work through you. He desires to work, you know, through me, (coughs) just as he did all those years ago for them. He says, you, you do this, right? You give them what they need. And you might feel like I feel. Often I feel like I can't do that. But that's what he tells you to do. So it seems like he believes that you can. 
right? And here uh, in verse 17, it says, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, right? That's their, that's their response. What a ridiculous idea to feed more than 5,000 people, because we're only counting the men here, with five loaves of bread and two fish. They really have to make those fish work. Verse 18, bring them here to me, he said. Um, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls um, of broken pieces. Isn't it convenient there, there are 12 disciples? They pick up 12 baskets. It's like each one of them had to have just stung a little bit, you know? This is actually what's left over after I've done this miracle, so pretty capable. So that was what was left over in verse 21. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. <clears throat> they gave everything they had, right? They gave all they had, all the food that they had to these 5,000 uh, plus people, and it turned out to be enough. My firm belief <laughs> call it insecurity, call it fatalism, call it self-esteem issues. I don't know what, what you want to you know, throw at me. I've never felt like what I have is enough, right? Never. There's never been a moment in my life where there's someone's like, hey, you know, you, you want to speak or you want to go somewhere, you want to do that thing, you want to take that hill, whatever it is. You know, I don't know, I've never played sports, and that last one felt like a sports thing. Um, <clears throat> and I was like, yeah, I got it. You know, but it is. So hear that, right? <laughs> because he says, bring me all you have. And then he makes it enough. Somehow, miraculously and perfectly with overflow. You, right, each and every one of you, me included, you know, hopefully, just as he designed you. And just as he designed you. He takes you and, you know, as you place yourself in his hands, and he makes you enough. What a wonderful thing to consider. And, you know, that's just the beginning because we see how these events are connected. <clears throat> and and I'm, I'm doing pretty well on time here, so we're doing okay. Um, we see how these things are connected, right? These, these three events really do kind of build on one another. And uh, Jesus was providing a lesson here. And it's a really powerful uh, lesson. And he's going to show us, us all who can do this. A little flash forward. It's all of us, all right? He shows us when we can do it. Big hint, it's like now, right? And he shows us where. That's uh, here, right? And um, he shows us how. He's already showed them how with this miracle. It's just simple faith. You just put what you got in his hands and he'll take good care of it. But here's the thing. Um, I recently became a teacher. All right. Stop. You're too much. That's right. <laughs> um, so I recently became a teacher and teachers have this kind of timeless process built into their practice that first you teach the lesson like Jesus just did here for his disciples. And then you test your students, right? And you'll find this all throughout scripture. And 
it's been like all throughout my life. So I'm sure it's been all throughout yours as well. That Jesus kind of gives you something, this truth, this like insight, this, this impartation, whatever he gives you. And then he's going to throw a test at you to see how you uh, deal with your understanding and application of those truths. So this is what he was teaching to the disciples. And now we see in this connected story um, how uh, he tests his disciples. And it's appropriate testing. I think that's something valuable to keep in mind, um, that whenever Jesus does test you, it's an appropriate way to be tested, given what he has taught you, what, what, what he's given to you. Have any of you ever had like a professor, maybe a teacher, that tests you in a really inappropriate way? <laughs> that's not Jesus. Okay, so get that out of your head. <laughs> um, I had a professor uh, once at, uh, at college. I'm not going to say the name of the college. I'm going to really try and take all the teeth out of this story. Uh, but uh, he was a college English professor, professor that was anti-establishment and a communist hippie. It's a, he was super fun. Um, and he had been voluntarily homeless since his first year in college. Does anyone want to guess what college he went to? Nailed it every time. I've told that story several times. And uh, never liked to a crowd. Actually, I don't think I've ever told this story here. But I knew it. If I asked the question, someone would say, Berkeley. Yeah. And um, not to disparage Berkeley. It's a fine, fine university. I have a cousin that went to Berkeley. Brilliant young man. Brilliant young man. And he's uh, filtering, filtering. He's, he's just a brilliant young man. He's a good guy. There you go. That's enough said about that. <laughs> Our final... Our final essay assignment was on uh, the totalitarianism of the Bush administration, because that's, that's when I was going to that university. Um, and so I wrote the paper, I, I complied, and I turned it in, and on the last day, he gave the paper back to us, and he set it down in front of me, and I was horrified to find an F on my paper. And... Um, to that point, it was the first F I'd ever gotten on a paper. And I felt rage, just white hot rage. <laughs> and um, I, I began like shuffling in my seat and kind of standing up thinking like, I complied. I wrote on what you wanted me to write about. And I didn't try and stir the pot. Um, you prepared me to do this. I did it. And you failed me, right? That's kind of bonkers. Um, and then I noticed the room, right? You read the room and you see other people shuffling around and then somebody said it, right? Somebody stood up in the class. They slammed their fist down on their desk and they said, an F, you gave me an F. And the professor began, you know, oh, oh my, you know, shuffling his papers. And, and I mean, I would have never guessed that so many pitchforks and torches could come out of college backpacks, but it seemed... Like, that's exactly what happened in a moment. You know, I mean, just the entire class, they grabbed their papers, they grabbed their backpack, and they're like, let's go see the dean. Let's do it. This is the last straw. He's going to fail me in the class for doing what he told us to do. And then the professor quieted us all down. He said, no, take your seats. Take your seats. Let me explain. <clears throat> and he said, now listen, I failed you because you did what the man told you to do. 
pressed in the back going, yes. No. I don't, there's no no for this. That's what I would be doing if there was. This isn't quite the same. Um, he said, that's not what college is all about. College isn't about learning how to just fall in line with the man. College is about learning how to fight the man and stand up to the system. He said, so I failed you because you're just a bunch of sheep. You just do what the man tells you to do. And that didn't help. Um, <laughs> uh, so he informed us that we would be permitted to write our final paper there in class to get our grade for the course, and we were allowed to write as much or as little as we wanted about anything that we wanted, except what he had spoken about in class. So it couldn't be anything that he prepared us for, and he said he would give us a passing grade. <laughs> we had to write to our truth. That's what he said. And um, there were students that wrote their names on their paper <laughs> and said, you know, brought it up to him, set it down in front of him, said, said as much or as little as I wanted. There's my name. Pass me. And he was like, yeah, you're standing up to him. Here's your A. He gave him an A. An A. Guys, that's not how Jesus works. Jesus gives you a teaching. It's for a reason. It's for your growth and development. It's for your cultivation as a Christian. And then he'll set a test before you to test the significance of your application. And that's exactly what he does here. <clears throat> the testing begins in verse 22. Read along with me immediately. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, Jesus' popularity at this point had reached kind of its zenith. <clears throat> and there were these crowds clamoring around him with this idea that they were going to establish him as king and usher in this kingdom to cast off uh, Roman oppression and to uh, reassert Israel's independence. That was the goal. And, and you could already hear, you know, the buzzing amidst the crowd and the disciples chiming in saying, Okay, so like this is when it's going to happen. We got these 5,000 as an established army right now. They're enthusiastic. This is the moment to make it happen. I'm going to be on his left. You're going to be on his right. That old chestnut that they argued about constantly throughout scripture. They just didn't get it. And Jesus says, okay, so you guys, you can go ahead and get on the boat. I'm going to break up the mob. And they're like, what? They must have been fuming right now. What a ridiculous idea. Here you have everything we've been working towards. It's here. They see you for who you are. And now, you know, we're all together to make this happen. This, this is the point, you know, of, of, of action. And, and Jesus says, no, you can just go ahead and get on that boat and go out to sea, right? And that'll be fine. And my Bible says that he made them. Your Bible might say that he constrained them. The Greek is anakazo, right? Doesn't that sound like something from Harry Potter? I'm not a Harry Potter guy, but that my wife is super into Harry Potter right now. Um, but like anakazo, that sounds like I need a wand. Um, <clears throat> but it means to drive them away by force or threats. 
That's, that's the word used here for Jesus putting them in the boat. Um, he kind of manhandles them. It's, it's this like thing that reminds me of putting my kids down for a nap, right? Where it starts with like a, it's nap time, sweetie. And you know, then like 10 minutes later, it's just, just go to sleep. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of this moment at a verse 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. The Sea of Galilee is known for these sudden and violent storms. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? This, this boat was filled, though, with experienced fishermen. So it's not as if, you know, they weren't accustomed uh, to this sea and to these kinds of storms. And Jesus was about four miles away, if you, you know, chart the geography uh, from about the midpoint of the Sea of Galilee to the mountaintop where Jesus would have been praying um, at this point, no doubt, you know, praying for them, knowing full well what they're dealing with in this first part of their test. Now, here it is, the title for this first part of the test. It's that obedience doesn't mean ease, right? That is such, that is such an easy trap to fall into, right? Where you feel like, I was obedient. This needs to be easy, right? And it just so isn't sometimes. <laughs> what a lesson, right? You're doing what God tells you to do, going where God tells you to go. And that does not mean that it'll be a piece of cake. It just isn't sometimes. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Gideon, I still have such a hard time calling you by your first name. I'm sorry. It's just like a hurdle of respect that I keep tripping over every time I go to talk about you. Um, but Mrs. Gideon had mentioned to me uh, about a month ago now, maybe, that she was planning this trip to Haiti for the summer. And that maybe um, the university would provide a grant and sponsorship for someone um, to go on that trip. And they would send out... Um, Uh, teacher for teacher training, right? And I felt this tug on my heart uh, and, and it felt like God was putting me in that boat and I didn't want him to have to constrain me. So I complied and I just, I just got in and and she said, would you be interested? I said, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And, and that was, that was obedience, right? We can all agree that that was the moment it was presented. I didn't fight God on it. I just said, yeah, let's, let's shoot for it. And then every moment since then has been just filled with difficulty, just filled with difficulty. The university decided not to provide the grant. My passport had expired. I thought, well, I need to renew it. So I, I you know, thought, okay, well, after, after work today, I'll go renew it. I got into a car accident that morning. You know, just like this guy jumped out and he, he sideswiped the car um, about a block away from my school. You know, kids going to the school are <laughs> their backpacks right across the street and they're like, Mr. Turner? It's like, I'm, yeah. The, the fellow that hit me began fighting liability for the car accident. Um, uh, the, the taking the car in for estimates delayed the process of getting my passport renewed. Um, and then right when I kind of got that settled, 
we came down with this like tremendous flu in the house. And, and like, I know everyone gets the flu. It's not a big deal. This was like a frontiersman flu though, <laughs> right? Have you ever read in the history books? That's the only way I can describe it. Like you read in the history books about like the old West or something. And then like, you know, in 1857, this was a thriving town and then influenza struck. And now it's a ghost town you can visit for $50, you know, right on the ghosts. I don't know. Hey, ride or something. You know, that was this flu though. It hit our house. And I mean, I was, oh man, it was so, so tremendously bad. I'm just thinking about it now. There's something happening in my heart. It's the weirdest sensation. Um, and so that delayed everything again. There were complications with the flight. And then there were complications with my passport application. I needed to resubmit that. It was just every single thing that could go wrong. And I just started thinking like, yeah, okay. Is this like a closed door type of thing? Or is this an opportunity for perseverance? And it was just one of those moments where God was like, okay. You know, dude, sit down, take out your number two pencil. Okay, obedience doesn't mean ease. That's just the way this works. Okay, you're going to have to go through this. And it's a lesson that we got to learn um, or we'll quit every time it gets hard. Because, you know, following God, a lot of times, <clears throat> it, it's hard. It's hard. You learn this lesson when it's not devastatingly hard to get through the times where it might be. Because um, there have been times where I've just been like, you know, with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and going, you know, just let this cup pass from me. You know, I, I just, I can't deal with this. And then praying that companion prayer of, you know, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because his will has to be done. And sometimes it's to test us, to get us ready for new things. We can't let these storms stunt us or we'll stay at the elementary levels of our faith. So let's go through that list again, right? The university wouldn't support the trip. Thank goodness for, no, I, this is an appropriate context to say thank God. I can say thank God. Well, thank God for, you know, Miss Gideon and for Genesis because they're sending me, you know, that's remarkable. It's not something that I can do uh, without Mrs. Gideon, without Genesis. My car <clears throat> was repaired and it does look better now than it did before the car accident. I have to admit, because I had already put a scrape on that fender the day Leland was born. Corinne called me and said, I'm in the hospital, it's happening. And I was so anxious that I pushed the button on the gate. And then in my brain, I was like, I push the button, the gates open, rather than waiting the five seconds that it would have taken for the gate to actually open. So I drove right through that thing. And that happened to be the spot where the guy hit me. He came to my room the other day, because he knows I'm a teacher at the school up there. He came to my room with a like hands full of pizzas, just stacked high pizza boxes. Not, that'd be really awkward just walking around with a pile of pizzas, but pizza boxes. <laughs> and, um, and I told him that I said, you know, it actually looks better now than it did, you know, before you hit me. And he said, well, then I guess you're welcome. And 
I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't even give me one of those pizzas. <laughs> he, dude, hit me with his... <laughs> he was going somewhere else with him. <laughs> he just stopped by my room to show me that he had him, I guess. <laughs> because he accepted responsibility, I didn't have to pay for the repairs. The flu passed through my family, <clears throat> wiping out, you know, Corinne, wiping out me, leaving our kids largely unscathed, which is bizarre, but what a blessing. Um, the flight has been altered and confirmed, and my passport arrived yesterday which is amazing given that I had to resubmit it and I have an appointment for vaccinations tomorrow and I hate needles, but we have superhero stickers at home. So I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty psyched about that. Um, listen, the storm might stir up again tomorrow. I don't think I'm out of this. I know I'm not out of this, but it's one of those things where you begin to see this pattern develop in your Christianity when you go through these storms. And you can say, you know what? This storm will come tomorrow. And if it does, I'll remind the storm of tomorrow of the God of today, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He allows storms. They're allowed for our perfection. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, at this point, they've been rowing for about nine hours. Just keep that in mind, right? You can chart the timetable in this story. It's been about nine hours that they've been rowing out there, fighting against this storm at the sea. They're exhausted and they're confused. And in verse 26, to add to that exhaustion and confusion, in verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Put yourself in their shoes, right? I get it. <laughs> I really do. Uh, they're delirious. They're exhausted. The storm has been raging. There are no street lights. First of all, they're not on the street. So that was a dumb observation. They're in the middle of the ocean. But I mean, there are no like city lights out there. I mean, this was first century, um, you know, Galilee. Uh, the storm clouds would be obscuring the moon. So it's really just like pitch black out there. Occasionally, there's a flash of lightning, and on one of those flashes of lightning, somebody says something like, there's someone walking on the water. And so you think, that's, psh, you've lost it. And so you turn, and there's another flash of lightning, and you see the same thing that that guy saw, and you lose your mind right? It really sells ghost when it's a stormy night, you're backlit by lightning and you're walking on water. Something that no one has ever seen, something that no one has ever done, something that is completely impossible. And remember, these are sailors. So I'm sure they were raised believing some like seafaring tale that when it's your time in a tremendous storm, Death is just going to come waltzing on out on the sea and, you know, take you away. So, I mean, these aren't primitive people. They have every reason to be freaked out. In fact, I've been freaked out by a lot less, right? So have you probably, right? Let's get real here. When we first got married, we had uh, rodents in the attic, 
okay? And I did nothing about it because I'm a smart homeowner. And they eventually made their way down to our pantry. And we found droppings in the pantry. And I decided to come up with a plan. I had a three-point plan, and all of them began with bees, right? Broom, box, and boots. I didn't say it was a good plan. But, but that was the plan. The plan was when we heard it scurrying about in the pantry, I was going to take the broom on out there and I was going to pin it down with the broom and then scoop it up with the box. You're like, there was a third B. Where do those boots come into play, Mr. Turner? Here's where the boots come into play. If I can't pin it down because it overwhelms me with its tremendous strength with the broom, the plan was to kick it with the boots. Like into a corner, it puts it off its balance, and then I drop the box on it, and then I get it in the box. So my moment comes, we hear it in the pantry, I walk out there just filled with, you know, manliness, or at least the assumption of manliness, and, you know, I open up the door, and it goes silent in there. It's completely still. It's like, I know I heard in that corner. So with the broom, I probe at the corner, and it runs. It bolts out of that pantry right at me with those crazy, maniacal eyes. You know, there's thought in there. There's more going on up there than you think. It came right at me. And I couldn't get it with the broom. I couldn't get it with the box. I let out this humiliating scream. You're right. The pitch was so high, it made Mariah Carey green with envy. It was just this type of scream. And then instead of kicking it, when I wanted to, I started dancing on my tippy toes in my Harley Davidson boots. They had to be Harley Davidson boots, didn't they? The mouse was about the size of my cell phone, maybe smaller, right? So I get it, right? You want to judge these guys, but when lightning flashes and you see something that shouldn't be seen, something that had never been seen, a man walking on the wild waves of a stormy sea, boy, you'd cry out too, right? Verse 27, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water, and Jesus said, come. So I could say quite a bit about Peter using the word if there, if it's you, because it speaks volumes of his disbelief. But the fact is that while he was asking and moving, the other disciples were just hiding. They were just hiding in the boat. Um, And this is something I know. The the greatest uh, purposes of our life will never be discovered while hiding never while hiding. You need to, to step out. And they were terrified, right? There's this storm. There's this ghost. They had good reason, right? But unless they got out of the boat, they would not be able to pass the test and graduate to this next level of relationship and responsibility of God entrusting them with more. And so the question I have, and, and we are making our way ever so slowly towards our conclusion, is what is our boat 
what do we want to remain in to stay safe? I think clinging to for protection, believing as long as you have this thing, then everything will be okay. It'll all fall into place. It's a lot of things for a lot of different people. It could be money. I think money is my boat. It's been my boat for a really long time, which is really sad to admit that I've never moved past that. I've always had this sensation that uh, as long as I have a certain amount in the account, everything will be okay, you know? And I'll, I'll be fine. Everything, everything will just take care of itself as long as that's true. It could be our home. It could be our job. I've met people who th- their boat is anger. They've held to that for so long. They've hid within that for so long that they get comfort from it. Maybe it's our schedule, whatever it is. Hiding in the boat will allow you to survive. Um, But if you want to merely exist, right, that's good. If you're after more than survival, the boat isn't the answer. And you felt that. This isn't news to anyone. Right? You felt that in your entire life that there's more, that the boat is safe, the water is not. The problem comes when you see, you see it, right? You, you can see him. And seeing him out there on that water tells you that there's something miraculous out there. There's something more out there. The bigger problem comes when you can hear it. Now they can hear it. You can hear him telling you that you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of that life out there. That you can leave the boat. You can step out of it and not worry about it. So what do you do? Do you ignore that? Do you have that inner yearning? What do you do with it? Let me tell you, the first step is the hardest. In verse 29, it says, Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on the water. He came towards Jesus. When you get out of the boat, it won't be comfortable. Can you imagine actually walking on water in the midst of a storm? The shifting waves, the rolling of it. You'd hardly be able to stand. It's a perfect picture of walking by faith. You know, God presses this thing on your heart. It's a person. It's a conversation. It's a mission. It's a ministry. It's a vocation. Whatever it is, he's pushing it on you. You can feel the pressure of it. You can see the miracle just a step further. You can hear his voice saying, it's okay. You don't need to be afraid. I'm here. I'm here with you. And you take that step onto the rolling sea and you find that your feet don't sink. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Have you ever been there? It's remarkable. Spurgeon said, it was a marvelous thing to do. Others have made their way through the sea, but Peter walked over it. The laws of gravitation were suspended for his support. Picture the scene. What Jesus was doing, Peter was doing 
faith made Peter to be like his Lord. There were two walking, the one by his own infinite power, the other by the power imparted to him, the power of faith. Remember that faith will make any of us like Christ. Two things. I fear of that rolling sea when you step out of the boat will keep you from the greatest victories of your life. Second, faith will assure that you have them, ensure that you have them by making you more like Christ. Listen, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I went on a roller coaster and uh, it's up in Sacramento, I want to say, and I broke my classes. So as far as I'm concerned, roller coasters might as well be bullies, right? They just beat you up. Um, I don't think Peter was an adrenaline junkie either. Uh, I, I think he was just a guy that wanted to see what was possible with Christ. And he was not disappointed. He was not disappointed. The real disappointment would be looking back on a life where you watched other people step out of the boat and you never did. Knowing that you always could have because he was always there with outstretched arms saying, come. You just chose not to. In verse 30, we see what might happen if you do. Verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Since you have little faith, why did you doubt? I'm always so hard on Peter right here. Aren't you? Don't you? You want to just come after him right now. I could feel it in you. There's a, there's a bloodlust in the room. And it's not just for me going along. I had to, I had to delete those notes because it's not fair. It really isn't. Most of the time when the storm swells around my life, what I do, and maybe it's what you do, the wind picks up, the tide sucks me under, I want to claw my way out, right? I think I can do it. I can get myself out of this. I can work harder. I can study more. I can be better. I can do this. That's not what Peter did at all. That's not even a little bit. What he did is what we should all do. Immediately, he just said, Lord, save me. And boom, immediately, the Lord saved him. He called out to Jesus, and Jesus did not disappoint. You blow it, he won't abandon you. He won't forsake you. He'll be there for you. And I've blown it. I've blown it fantastically, and I have blown it publicly and I don't need to share that story. But in the quiet of the aftermath, when I said, Lord, help me, Lord, save me, he's done it immediately. And in that moment, you can almost feel the warmth of his hand as he reaches out to pull you up out of the murky depths, like a father teaching his child how to walk in the living room, right? It was different for all my kids, but, you know, they'd, claw their way up on the couch to kind of stabilize. Then they turn their body towards you and they take those first awkward steps in your direction and then fall down. And if you grabbed them in time, maybe they'd giggle and it could be fun. 
they went down too hard. Maybe they'd cry. But either way, you were there for them every step. You'd say, don't cry. I'm here. Listen, you're learning. You're learning. And there's no shame in taking steps and falling. You took the steps. And that's all that really matters. Verse 32, it's our last verse. And 33. But that's it, I promise. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So Jesus begins our story in a boat. Right? Sorrow put him there. Loss sought to keep him there. Compassion for this world drove him out. It drove him out of that boat. Peter, later in the very same boat, very same boat, fear sought to keep him there. Safety and security and a, a sure thing, something you can understand sought to keep him there. The comforts of that boat. His heart cried out, just stay. Others listened. He stood. He took a step of faith because he believed that there was something more. I wonder what more exists out on the rough waters of the storms of this life for us if we would step out to them. Let me tell you two things before we leave that you can be sure of today. Two things. Your faith won't be perfect. You'll sink. There will come a time when you sink. You can be sure of that. Your faith won't be perfect. But first, when you fail, he will pull you out as a loving father teaching you how to walk, wiping away your tears, saying, please don't stop trying. Please don't go back to crawling. You can walk. I know you can. Second, every once in a while, you'll walk on water. That is such a wonderful thing. Every once in a while, when you step out, you'll see this crazy, impossible, miraculous thing happen in your midst where one walked on the water by his own miraculous strength and the other by strength imparted to him, doing the same act as his Lord and Savior. That'll be you. That'll be me. We'll get to do and be like him in this perfect way. And it all begins with one step out of the boat onto the water. And I wonder what that one step would be for us this week. I wonder as we close in prayer, as you quiet your heart, as you listen to that still small voice, what that step is for you. What that step is for me. Lord, thank you for this this picture of this process that you have given to us. Lord, that we have the benefit that we can look back upon your word and see the way it all works together. 
in the midst of it every day, it can seem so confusing. It can seem so chaotic to be in such storms, and it can be so easy, driven by loss or driven by fear, whatever the motivation would be, to cling to the boat and say, well, I'm just fine here. I don't need to do anything outside of here. It's enough for me to be here. After all, obedience put me in the boat in the first place. But Lord, there's more. The things that we would see if we took a simple step towards you. Lord, I pray now as you stand out upon those waters, proving that you're greater than them, proving that you can walk upon them, that we would believe in you and that we would prove that to you by stepping out towards you. I trust our our choices into your hands. I ask that you'd give us boldness, give us clarity this week. Thank you, in Jesus' name. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.